0: Hello, hoopaholics! It's Coach Spins here, back from the box and one podcast. I'm really excited for today's episode. Ricky O'Donnell, Vespi Nation, is joining us here to go over a quick preview of next week's NBA Draft Combine, as well as just general NBA Draft philosophy questions, getting to know the class of 2022 that's going to be uh, drafted, in, I guess. What a month and a half at this point. So uh we're really getting into the nitty-gritty, but Ricky's a guy whose work I've admired for a long period of time and was really glad we were able to get him on the pod here today. Ricky, how you doing, my friend? How you doing, Adam? We're we're hanging in. I think that's the the appropriate terminology for everybody's at in life, right? Yeah, it's a fun time of year in basketball. You got the
1: playoffs going on. We'll have the draft combine and draft season really starting to heat up. We got AAU happening. So you know, the old I remember there was an old Nike shirt that said basketball never sleeps. It really feels more and more true every year. Even the offseason just seems so packed uh, with different events. If you follow the game at all three levels and then, you know, we got the WNBA season starting now too, underway. So a lot going on in the basketball world, but it's fun for uh, people like me and you to, to talk about and
0: gives us. Gives us plenty of new stuff to think about as well. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's it's exciting. Uh, basketball really does never sleep. I know we're still doing workouts a couple hours a week with our high school team here. So, uh, you know, always in the gym on the front lines. There's something to do, uh, no, no matter what time of year it is. But uh, Ricky was a, a guy that I thought would be great to have on around this time because Ricky has experience going to the NBA Draft Combine, which is going to be all of next week and is going to be heading there again this year, correct? Yep. So, with that in mind, we want to get to know the the nitty gritty, right? The ins and outs, how the event is run, what teams and prospects and 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 everybody can gain from going through the combine process. The names, in particular, that will be there, that'll be playing in the five v five scrimmages, that's still going to get sorted out, right? We don't have that fully done yet, but. The whole point of this is to be a little more philosophical on the types of prospects, the type of players, the things that teams are looking for thematically. So we have a few questions in that regard, and we'll go over a couple prospects that uh, I think we're both pretty intrigued by at the very least. So before we get there, we do have a time-honored tradition here at the Boxing One Podcast, Ricky, that you are not going to be immune from. And it's a question that we ask all of our guests here to start the show. You ready? Yep. You're up three with five seconds to go, and it's the other team's ball inbounding in the full court. Do you foul? What is it that you would, uh, you would instruct your team to do? Yeah, it's a great question.
1: So the, my first thought on this is what level are we talking about? Are we talking about just like any level
0: in particular? Are we talking about specifically the NBA so I always let the the guests kind of pick whatever's most ap- applicable to them, their sure. interests, their experience. I'm a high school coach. I know that's going to be very different for what I talk to my guys with versus what I would do if I were at a Division One school. Um, sure. But I, I think that wherever you want to take the question from there, go with it.
1: Fascinating question. I think I'm historically a follow up three guy. Now you can see how close the margin is on some of those shot attempts in I believe it was game three of the Celtics-Bucks series when I think Marcus Smart comes off the dribble handoff, immediately goes up for the shot. Refs don't call it a shooting foul. Looked like Smart grifted his way to a shooting foul to me, but like that's sort of the, uh, the push and pull of the foul-up three experience, right? Celtics also had a very good look it had a tip in a tip-in to tie the game Uh, In that instance, after Smart missed the second free throw. So there is plenty that can always go wrong no matter which route you take. But I think ultimately it's about minimizing risk. And I just feel like more has to go the offense's way if you foul. Uh, It's either in the ref's hands to, like, you know, if they do try to grift their way into a three shot foul to actually call that. You know, missing a free throw on purpose and tapping it in like there's so many variables to that. It just seems like the safer route for the defense. If you're up three, five seconds left, I'm going to foul and I'm going to tell my guys, you know, be careful for a dude going up for a shot for a player going up for a shot. But uh, I I think I do favor fouling up three.
0: Well, I I like, and I appreciate the explanation there as to, uh, you know, mitigating all of the the different variables in the equation. I think as a a coach or someone who has to make that decision, that's really all you're doing, right? Like you can't make the ball go into the basket for your team necessarily. You just have to try to get rid of all of the factors that could change the outcome and make it as simple as possible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm sure it's different at, at, uh, at every level, Mm -hmm. But when you see a coach not follow up three, your initial, you know, and a team, you know, gets open for three your initial reaction is like, why even risk it? Like there's, there's just, it just seems a little bit of a safer route to foul if you can. Uh, and if the, you know, the situation and the context sets up for it, and obviously like where the ball is being inbounded at the types of players on the other team, uh, these are all just like important variables in the equation, but I'm a follow up three guy.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I am too, for the record, um, and I'm, I'm unashamed to admit that. But Ricky's here for essentially a preview episode. Uh, we are a week away as we're recording this on a Tuesday afternoon from the NBA draft lottery when a lot of questions get answered about who's drafting and what order and what to really expect from there. Uh, during that, ex- that same time period, while that lottery is taking place, the NBA draft combine is going on for a full week. And we'll get into the minutiae of the Combine in a second, but I want to focus on the lottery here, Ricky, for just a quick second. Uh, We've been chatting back and forth the last few days about how to structure this episode and what's put together. And you came up with a a really good question that, you know, being the the host of this show, I'm going to play the asshole card and flip it back on you. Uh, Is there one team that would have a really tough decision if they ended up winning the lottery and being number one overall? Like, I don't know how you feel about this. If it's more clear cut based on hey, if Detroit ends up getting it, they go with one guy. If it's Orlando, they go with another, but is there one team that just, they're going to have a really tough decision to make because there are a lot of different options that fit what they're trying to do.
1: For sure. So I did this article, despination.com trying to determine who every team would pick at number one, if they won the lottery and just, you know, Different people will view this draft in different ways, especially this year, where it feels like at this point, there's no clear cut front runner to be number one. I think you have three very strong candidates in Paulo Chet Holmgren, Jambari Smith Jr. I really like Jaden Ivey as a prospect too. the top four of this draft. I think is very, very solid with players who conceivably could go number one. And it wouldn't be like an Anthony Bennett situation if you're like, what is this team doing? Like you could sort of see the vision. Uh, for any team based on how they would pick these three guys. But I'll tell you, when I was doing this exercise, the team I had the hardest time coming up with the number one pick for was Orlando. And I am a guy who's had Paolo Bancaro, number one in this class, wire to wire. Every year at SB Nation, I release next year's draft board the day after the current draft. And I had Bancaro, number one on that board. He maintained that status all the way throughout the end of the year. I think that this is a draft though with multiple tier one prospects. I don't think that there's like a clear cut number one dude. So Orlando, just based on what they have, I'm like, which, which of these three guys would I go with? Uh, Part of me thinks that like, if you don't have a lead creator, your biggest need is a lead creator. And obviously Orlando has a few guys who could turn into that. I think Jalen Suggs, their pick last year, they potentially expect him to turn into that guy you still got Markel Fultz you got Cole Anthony who had a very good year but I think you know Bancaro might have a little bit more creation ability just based on his size his ability to pass on the move uh, the height to see over the defense and anyone else but you know they got Wendell Carter there on a $50 million deal, he had a career year this past year, would feel a little bit silly to like cut bait on him, so to speak, and I don't know if him and Paolo could really play together, just because they're both sort of shaky spot up shooters. Then you got Mobamba, who's going to be a restricted free agent, you could very easily see Chet Holmgren sort of taking his spot. Uh, Orlando's front office obviously has had an obsession with length for a long time. Holmgren having a seven, six wingspan would seem to fit in historically with how that franchise drafts, but Bamba actually pretty quietly had a good year. And I think that, you know, his development was part of the reason that Carter had a solid year as well. Carter being able to play the four in Orlando, whereas in Chicago, he was playing the five, uh, you know how many guys have Mo Bamba's tools of a seven eight wingspan, three point shooting ability? I was looking at his numbers on uh dunksandthrees.com, which does the EPM stat, yeah. and Bamba graded out pretty pretty well on both ends of his floor, especially considering he was playing for one of the worst teams in the league. So I'm like, I don't know, like, do you really draft Holmgren when you already got Bamba and you invested four years into developing him? Anyways, I think Jabari Smith might be third or fourth in this class for me personally. I think he's a great prospect. Reasonable minds can disagree on this, but I had him going to Orlando. Maybe it was just because I wanted to say I want Jabari to be number one for one or two of these teams. I think I had him for Cleveland as well, who is, of course, 14th in the lottery. So they're very unlikely to jump up to number one. But I think that uh, obviously what Jabari brings to the mix is just like nuclear three point shooting and Given the options they already have on the roster, I think that he would be a really good addition. I think, you know, you could play him in a super-sized front court with Franz Wagner, with Bamba or Carter. Uh, and yeah, he's not going to create much off the dribble and they don't really have like an excellent lead creator, but they got enough guys who can play that role. I think with Suggs, with Cole, with Fultz that, yeah, I went, I went with Jabari on that one. I don't feel great about it just because of my personal board. He's like, Probably fourth, but uh, yeah, that's what I did. So I'm going to throw it back to you. You know, which, what do you think a team like Orlando would do if they were to get the number one pick? And, you know, is there a team that you think would have a particularly difficult decision if they were to land that first spot?
0: So this is going to turn into an echo chamber for a quick moment here, because I, I think that we agree on some of these. We have roughly the same order. I have Paolo, then Chet, then Jaden Ivy, and then Jabari Four on my personal board right now, with Paolo and Chet being kind of a half notch above everybody else. With Orlando and in regards to them, we, um, you said something that if you don't have a primary option, the thing that you need most really is a primary option. And, and to me, that's where Bancaro stands out as being the best fit. Um, I, you know, Wendell Carter had an awesome year this year. And going from playing, like you said, center in Chicago, he was almost exclusively playing the center. Like 99% of his minutes, according to basketball reference, came at the center spot. And he's been more utilized at the power forward. 52% of his time in Orlando, he's played the four. I don't know if Wendell Carter, as good as he is, and as good of a year as he has, is worth blockading your franchise's ability to get a talent like Paolo Bancara. And because of that, I, it's not as much of a decision for me. I think you take Paolo and you move whatever front court pieces you need to in order to make it work because he fits pretty well next to Wagner and Suggs and Anthony in a lot of those ways. Love it. Yeah, I was overthinking
1: it, man. Like, I got
0: Paolo number one
1: on my board, so that probably should have been the answer. But I like that, and I'm going to give you one more about Oklahoma City? Where I think, like, they haven't said it, but I feel like people in, who do what me and you do, we all sort of know they want yama next yeah. year, right? Yeah. So, like, they don't have a ton of talent in the front court. Obviously, it's a team built around shay and Giddy. Mm-hmm. Do you, those guys are both, you know, shay sort of is a primary creator for sure, I would say. Giddy, like, connecting piece. Do you go Palo there? Do you go Chet there? Uh, I gave him Chet, again, Palo's number one on my board, so I would almost give Palo number one to any team, kind of, if I really think about it. But what, what would you think Oklahoma City would do? They were another tough one for me.
0: Yeah, Chet is, to me, exactly what Oklahoma City would look for, and I view their long-term roster construction less about kind of positional talent and, you know, um, are they looking for shooting here? They've got this guy they need X, Y, or Z around him. I think they just want length freaking everywhere. Yeah, And Shea and Giddy in the backcourt, Poku somewhere in the mix, if he turns into exactly what they'd hoped he would be, the litany of picks that they have, like just go out and get versatile, but really long pieces. And what I think about Chet right now is that you could use him this year, draft him, and he's not going to elevate your franchise to the point that plays you out of a Victor Wemenyama. And maybe 13, 14 months from now, we're sitting here talking about, holy crap, this could be a team that has Holmgren and Yama together. And the more that I watch Victor, the more I think those two pieces could actually work. And that's to me what you swing for if you're Oklahoma city at this point in the draft.
1: Yeah. I went with Chet too, when I was doing the exercise. So it's a fun thing to think about. I guess the lottery will be uh, right around the corner by the time this episode is released and listeners are checking it out. But Uh, it's, it's a fun thing just to go over in this draft because it's one of the, so I've been covering the draft for SP nation since 2014, wow the first year, right? 14. Was that Wiggins and Jabari? It was. Yeah. So yeah, that was the first year I I have done it and I've been lucky enough to do it since. And there's not too many years where the number one pick feels like totally wide open. Like you usually know who the guy is going to be. Before the lottery, yep. uh, I guess 2020, you had Anthony Edwards, Lamelo, James Wiseman, all in the mix. But usually I feel like we know who the top prize is heading into the lottery. This year feels a little bit different to me. I think it could d- be determined by who does line that first pick. So yeah. fun thing to
0: think about. Well, and you mentioned Cleveland. I won't belabor this point too long, but the one thing about Jabari, Chet and Paolo is they're all kind of front court guys. And what do you do if you're a team drafting the lottery, you end up launching all the way into this top three and you'd really have your front court of the future already set. I think Cleveland's probably the only team that's close to that point. And that's where I I have no idea what they would do um, in, in that regard. Right. Who is the next guy to move? If you, if you think you have to take Chet Holmgren, do you want him and Evan Mobley together? Is that something you think can work defensively and offensively? Do you think Paolo is the guy to keep? And you say, hey, Allen, like, let's, let's move on from you. Can they do what they did this year with Jabari uh, at the three, essentially, like they did with Larry like, There There's so many different routes that they could maybe take in that regard. Cleveland's the one that I would struggle with the most in terms of predicting.
1: Yeah, I gave Cleveland Jabari for that reason. You know, Jaden Ivey would be great there, too, especially if they're moving on from Sexton. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll throw this one at you since I know you've been watching the Celtics-Bucks series. Both of those teams going with, like, sort of bully ball approaches, right? I know Milwaukee moved off of it later in the series, but they opened the series with Brooke Lopez, Giannis, and Bobby Portis in the front line. Obviously, the Celtics front line of Al Horford and Robert Williams, I would say coming into the year, I would have been like, not enough spacing, not going to work. Of course, Horford, just like totally incredible, specifically in that game four. He's turned back the clock. I saw a tweet from, I believe it was Henry Ward, though I can't find it now. So if I'm misplacing this to someone else, I'm sorry. But I believe he said something along the lines of, You know, everything good on a basketball court happens in space. So the goal of offense should be to create space. The goal of defense should be to limit space. So I'm almost wondering now if like it's sort of making me reevaluate watching these playoffs. Uh, You know, I would have thought that like as someone based in Chicago, when the Bulls used to put Nikola Mirotic or Lowry Markinen at the three, I was like losing my mind. Like, what are you doing? This is the worst thing you could do. But now that I think about it, like, you know, maybe there is some value in just like packing the paint with length, Mm -hmm. getting enough (laughs) close to seven footers who can sort of stretch the floor, stretch the floor enough where you can't completely ignore them on the perimeter. And, you know, you just throw them, throw them, you know, seven, three wingspans in the paint and try to limit space that way. So just curious, you know, could you see something like Jabari Smith playing the three in the league working, Initially, I would have said no. Now I'm thinking about it more after seeing what Milwaukee did in the playoffs. And I'm like, ah, maybe. Uh, just sort of something I've been thinking about watching these playoffs and Scott in this draft.
0: Yeah, I think Jabari at the three works in the context that a team only relies on him to stand on the perimeter and shoot threes. Like yeah. I don't want to play through him in the mismatch post area. I don't think that he can take smaller guys off the bounce because he doesn't have good enough handle and fluidity in those regards. And if you're drafting a guy with that intention, I don't think that you take him top three, uh, especially in this draft class. Like I don't want just a spot up shooter who's just longer than other spot up shooters to be a top two or three pick. Sure. That said, I think there's a lot of merit to what you're talking about. A team's getting bigger without sacrificing the skill and the space that they can create on the offensive end because length is what shrinks space on defense. But if you can still shoot it or space the floor appropriately with your skill on the other end, then you're getting the best of both worlds. I think the wave of the future roster construction wise is almost what we've seen in Toronto this year. And then maybe what Oklahoma city can build based on the length that they have in their backcourt, which is a bunch of guys who are six, six to six nine and all are interchangeable and switchable and play so many different weird positions. Even if, they, even if they don't have positions, they're just good basketball players that can share the floor with each other, but they're long, they're physical and they can do so many different things that it's a game planning nightmare for your opponent while taking away that space on the defensive end.
1: For sure. And, you know, you say six, six to six, nine, I think that's sort of the way we've all been thinking about it, you know, just as sort of positions have started to die and the games become a little more free flowing, but like, what if the future is six ten to seven foot, you know, instead of six, six to six, nine. So it's just cool to watch the game evolve bigger players to get more skilled and dude, it's basketball. It's like from the beginning of the time the game was invented, being big has been probably the best attribute you can have, right? Like going back to Bill Russell, Chamberlain, all those guys. And uh, even in the small ball era, you know, our three MVP candidates are Giannis, Jokic, and Embiid, who are all, you know, nominal big, so nominal centers, So uh, pretty remarkable. And it's why the game's so much fun. It's always improving itself from the past and using the past to sort of dictate the future. And
0: that's why we love it so much. It is size and skill, baby size and skill. And, and as we're talking about what to look for, for the future, that's a great pivoting point towards the NBA draft combine. And for our listeners and and those who, you know, follow the NBA draft, but might not be as familiar with the combine, let's run through a little bit of the changes in the landscape to how the event is run or, or what actually goes on. So There are actually two combine events that take place next week. One is the G League Elite Camp, and one is the NBA Draft Combine. Uh, The 16th and 17th, which is Monday and Tuesday of next week, they're both being held at the same time in Chicago. And there are about 60 players who are invited to the NBA Draft Combine. That list will grow with a few names who get pulled from the G League camp that were top performers most intriguing to some executives just guys that they want to then see in the additional context of more of the top 60 names or guys in that crop so there's going to be anywhere from 60 to 70 guys that finish out that week from may 18th to the 22nd in that period of time at the nba draft combine teams will receive official measurements strength and agility testing from prospects shooting drills, other on-court testing means. They'll get individual interview access, which I'm going to ask you about in a little bit, and there will be some 5v5 scrimmages. Prospects can play in some of them, can not participate in others. There's a lot of agent control that goes into that process throughout. So there's a lot of moving pieces that go with it. I can only imagine it's a very, very hectic week. But all of this is done by May 22nd, which leaves about one week period for any of these early entrant candidates to look at the landscape, know how they did out there in Chicago, and decide if they're going to stay in this draft or return to school. Because I believe June 1st is the early entrant withdrawal date. So, Ricky, we've set the stage for the event and all of this, but is it as chaotic as I imagine it being in terms of that regard? Like, what is it actually like being at a Combine?
1: Yeah, it's different for a media member than a team or a player. But I'll say my experience as a media member is it usually does feel pretty hectic because there's just so much going on. Like the scrimmaging, that's the only actual basketball being played. So like you do sort of want to watch that. I remember in previous years, like last year in particular, Bones Highland was just killing it in the scrimmage. I think that was the first time I had seen like live hoops since the pandemic too. So I was just like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I'm sitting in an empty gym watching Bone Island, Bones Island give these guys buckets one after another. Uh, but you can also say that like, well, this, how consequential is really the scrimmaging? Like the two guys I can think of who have really impressed me in the scrimmaging over the years, Bones Island and Zach Levine. And Zach Levine was like one of the rare guys that year. I think that was 2015 maybe. I'm, I'm getting old. It's hard 15, to remember now. Yeah. Uh, where it was like okay this guy could be a mid first rounder so it was surprising to see him play in it and he was just like killing guys in that and uh so just like just those are two examples i think of guys who like helped themselves in the scrimmage over the years that's just coming from my mind i'm sure there's plenty of other good examples uh, that maybe you could think of off the top of your head too just in guys who have helped themselves with the scrimmage but when i go there as a media member what i was typically doing pre-pandemic was like i want to write some good stories out of the media availability so the media availability is super hectic because historically what they would do is have a guy at a table and you know he'll have open media availability for 10 minutes and you have all these reporters from all over the country all trying to get their one question that they need to write a thing and normally it's like have you talked to the hornets the guy's like no i haven't talked to the hornets or yeah i talked to the hornets what do you like about the hornets uh you know It's a cool team. So it's funny because, you know, I'm trying to do more like, I guess, stories on the guy's individual journeys. Mm -hmm. Whereas other reporters have different things that they're trying to accomplish, too. So that does get a little hectic. And then you got the testing and the measurements, too, which it's like it's certainly not as impactful as the NFL draft combine. I don't know how closely or if at all you follow the NFL draft yeah so the story this year at the NFL draft and I'm not really an NFL guy but I'm going to talk like I am here was that Trevon Walker became the number one pick because he just killed it at the combine the Jaguars took him number one I I can't say this with much authority but I believe he was considered a late first round or early second round pick heading into the combine And then it's like, okay, he's 270 pounds and he ran a four or five. And it's like, maybe this guy's a total freak. That doesn't really happen in the NBA draft combine in terms of a guy's ability to help themselves that much. But when a dude does perform really well in the agility drills, I think the thing that like Twitter gets obsessed with is the vertical leaping, uh, which may be a little overrated, but there are some good drills, I think, to uh, sort of like gauge athleticism, see how guys compare to years past. And I am very interested in the measurements too, because, like, when we're doing this stuff, you know, I'm right now he's six six with a six nine wingspan. I'm like, but is he really? Like, I have no idea. And I'll say the one example of this year's class is Ben Matherin versus AJ Griffin. If you go to the school websites, they're both listed at six six. And I looked at those guys, or maybe even six seven, I looked at those guys on the TV screen and I thought, AJ Griffin looks like he's twice as big as Ben Matherin. That's just my uneducated eye. I could be totally wrong, and Ben Matherin could be taller than AJ Griffin. But I think no chance, based on what I've seen on TV. AJ Griffin looks significantly bigger, so I'm curious to see, like, you know, how big is Matherin going to measure? Shaden Sharp, is he going to measure? Is he six four or six six? Like, the measurements are important because in basketball. Every inch matters, man. Every inch of height, every inch of wingspan gives you a better chance to make it and last in the league. So there's a lot going on at the Combine, to be sure. It is overwhelming when you're there as a reporter, but you you can't be on all of it. You know, you just got to sort of like focus on your one or two tasks that you want to do when you're there as a media member and take it all in. And of course, the teams have different agendas. The players have different agendas, as do
0: the reporters. Well, I'm glad you brought up the NFL draft and the combine process there, because I do feel like there is way more stock put into the testing numbers, right? The, the 40 times, the, the weightlifting sessions, like that carries a lot more weight in the NFL side of things. I think that where we get caught sometimes is the balance between those measurements and some of those official numbers. And the actual skill portion of being a basketball player, right? Like the intersection of those two is really what we're trying to evaluate as, as scouts and the, the difficulty, or I should say what I think the NBA does really well is provide a five on five setting for some of those more skilled guys who might not test well dimensionally or in terms of their, their bench press reps, whatever it ends up being is giving them the opportunity in front of those same executives in that same weekend to show out in a playing setting. And it it makes for this really strange uh, dichotomy of prospects that can emerge, right? You may have these really, really athletic guys. And if you're looking at the testing, you talk yourself into them say, well, they're raw. They're going to take time on court, but they have what we can't teach. They're super long. They're super bouncy. That's worth investing in. Then you have the other side of the coin, which is You don't win games by being 6'11". You win games by putting the ball in the bucket, having high basketball IQ, and just having a good feel and making plays. And this guy did that during those scrimmage periods against his peers and contemporaries, even though he didn't test very well. I'm curious for you, Ricky, is there one side of the coin that you tend to fall on more than the other? In terms of what I value
1: in prospects? Yeah. So the measurements or... the skill level or the tape, we'll say. Yeah, I would say that I think I've, uh, as I've gotten older doing this for longer, historically, I always fall for the guy with the physical tools. The, uh, let's say like the Tyrus Thomas type, the Kai Jones type, the guy with the flash plays, where it's like, well, his numbers might not be very good, but oh my God, did you see him do this? If he can do this once he can replicate this once he gets NBA coaching and NBA spacing. Well, I mean, it sounds good, but I've been burned by those guys so many times in the draft when I'm like, this is your high upside ticket. So what I really think is most important is just IQ and feel. And obviously you need to have a baseline of skill. I think if you have size and feel, man, watching Kyle Anderson do these underwater drives where he's moving like 0.3 miles an hour. It's like, there's no way he's getting to his spot. There's no way he's getting to his spot. I can go get my mail right now before he gets to his spot, but he's still getting to his spot and he's getting to the foul line or he's hitting a tough bank shot. Uh, So for me, now you're a coach. I'll say like anyone who's familiar with my work or read my work, like coach Spins over here knows the game significantly more than I do. I could not coach the game. I'm just a guy. But you know it, so I find that when I watch, the this might ruin my credibility here. But I'll just say I think that the, one of the toughest things for me to decide often is feel, because it doesn't even always show up in the statistics. Like you could look at assist to turnover ratio, you could look at how teams perform with a guy on the bench versus on the floor, whatever it's going to be. But sometimes you don't really notice that feel until you watch a guy at the NBA level in like the role that they're going to play for their pro team. So just to throw it back at you, like when you're evaluating guys, you know, which uh, same question, like, you know, what, what do you sort of favor? And then like, how do you sort of judge a player's feel?
0: That's a yeah, great two pronged question. So I always steered clear of guys that I thought were all athletic tools and no feel. I was easily out on a lot of them. Um, but what I've learned over the last couple of years of doing this is that I didn't value enough the guys who had a ton of feel, but not great physical tools. And I would throw like Tyrese Halliburton in that category as somebody that I was way too low on. Too. Uh, even even Jalen Brunson to some regard, right? Like we spend too much time talking about the physical tools or this or that, but if they have elite levels of feel, of creativity, of just being a smart, good basketball player, they compensate for that. So I'm starting to shift more towards feel in that idea. Now, obviously if you can have both, like you end up being a really coveted guy, but if, if one is absent, uh, I tend to want to value guys who have feel, but not great athletic tools. Now, how do you evaluate feel? It's tough. Uh, I, I think that it's going to be hard for me to put that into really clear and concise terms. The, the best way I try to think about it when I'm watching guys is Part of what I'm watching for in the college tape is what is the team that he's playing on trying to accomplish? What is the coach trying to do on the floor with their defensive scheme? Why are they running drop coverage? Why are they switching things? Why are they hard hedging or on the offensive end? You know, why is he running a mover blocker offense? If you're Tony Bennett, why is this guy trying to throw the ball into the post to that threat? Um, And from there in those actions, try to diagnose, does this player have the creativity to know when to break off those actions and just have magic happen? And does he have an understanding at the same time of, yeah, I probably got to make that next pass, or there's a natural mismatch that we're trying to exploit. I got to throw the ball into those areas. Feel is as much about existing in the scheme that you play in as it is creativity to know when to go outside of it. And I try to do my very best at understanding the scheme so that i can try to make those judgments about whether the player's doing a or b i
1: got a follow-up question to this my first is as a coach my intuition would tell me that you have you don't struggle to determine which players are high field when you coach them no you just sort of like know when you're around them and you know what you're asking them to do so i wanted to confirm that like a coach could probably tell
0: you very much so and and it's Obvious when you watch a practice more than it is anything else. Games, it's hard to know what is strategy, what the defense is taking you out of. Uh practices, it it is a lot easier to identify.
1: And then thoughts on if a guy can improve his feel
0: as he I goes think, on in the game. Yeah, I think they can. Um, now what I will say is I think when people get to the NBA because there's so much depth and minutia that these coaching staffs and, and everybody can go into everyone develops their feel. So even the guys like Halliburton or even a LaMelo ball who come in with an exceptional feel, they get better too. Yeah. So it's not necessarily something that's going to close the gap, but I think a lower feel guy can come in and become passable in that regard. Sure. So that's a great question though, Ricky. And, and, and a lot of this discussion are philosophical things, right? Things that are kind of hidden from the public eye. We're not just watching, hey, Kantari Tari Eason get better going to his left hand? Like there's, there's an element of this that's, that's really outside of the scope of just film, right? Is he actually going to be able to work on this and improve it? We can identify areas of improvement or strengths all we want, but it's really hard to project out how these guys and which ones are going to get better. Um, so in that frame of mind, I want to get to know a little bit more about the interview process for these teams, right? From a team perspective here, when they come to the combine, how important do you think the interview process is for them and the time that they have with some of these guys and getting to know them face to face, like the skill evaluation stuff, there are a bunch of guys out there that can do it, but the real decision makers are making an investment in young guys, in teenagers, a lot of the time and handing them millions of dollars to come in and get better. And they better do their research and their background checking to make sure that the person they're giving that money to is really the right person to to get better and to handle that responsibility. So how much of this process is just about access to information and getting to know and see these guys, and maybe how they even interact with each other on the side of drills as much as it is about... Hey, he tested with a 42-inch vertical.
1: Sure. So the first thing I'll say is I don't really have any inside information in this regard because I've never been on the team side. So this is just like some speculation. But I will say I read a great feature from James Herbert on CBS Sports on Scotty Barnes. It's probably like a month ago. And basically, it just talked about how much research and just like how much of their homework the Raptors did into Scotty Barnes, of course, taking Barnes over Jalen Suggs was like sort of like a wow moment in that draft. Most teams or most evaluators probably would have favored Suggs over Barnes. I would say that looks like an unbelievably sharp selection one year later. Like, of course, the Raptors nailed it. That's what the Raptors do, right? But I just remember all of the research the Raptors did on Barnes talking to basically like anyone who's ever known him, anyone who's ever coached him, and I think in terms of the interview process, what happens at the combine is just like a sliver of it, right? Like, yep. I don't think that the, re- that the interview process at the combine is very often making or breaking people's evaluations of players as people, let's say, uh, more so than like, okay, this is like an introductory step. Now we're going to go talk to all your high school coaches, all your college coaches, as many teammates as we can find. And we're just going to try to build the most – extensive profile of your character your work ethic uh you know how you process the game mentally uh so i think that that part of it is definitely super big i think it is a a big question mark in terms of evaluation like a great example would be jimmy butler 30th pick in the draft The Bulls traded Jimmy Butler with two years left on a deal that was way, way, way below market value because they didn't want to give him his next contract because they thought, well, Jimmy Butler played so many minutes under Tom Thibodeau. Jimmy Butler is not a very good shooter. Certainly Jimmy Butler will not age well, but what they failed to consider is that Jimmy Butler has never considered failure. He just, it's not even in his purview. Jimmy Butler cannot even fathom the thought of failure. Right. And I think that that's, part of the reason Jimmy Butler built himself into a guy who was a juco guy coming out of high school into, I mean, he's basically been a top 20 player for six or seven years in a row now, maybe even more than that. Uh, And I would say that, you know, someone, someone could look at that and be like, Oh, the bulls, they really developed Jimmy Butler over here. It's like, no, Jimmy Butler developed himself. He had that, he had that dog in him. I don't even know what else to say. Right. He just like, he had that ability to, not only work harder than everyone, but also like work smarter than everyone and just like figure out ways to leverage what his skills are to make himself the best player he can be with what he had to work with, right? Size, strength, first step, whatever it is. So uh, yeah, trying to determine those guys, right? Like Draymond would be another great example. Like Draymond's ability to improve himself and obviously like Draymond's widely viewed as the smartest player of this generation but you know it's not that easy to just be like oh he's the smartest player of course he's going to be you know the best defensive player of his generation or whatever it is so yeah I think if I was on the team side that's where I would be most curious yeah it's just like trying to figure out what's going on in a dude's head and sort of how that translates to their ability to improve themselves yep yeah but I mean I'm just a guy I don't really know
0: well I I always talk about outlier skills right like in the NBA if you're going to make it you got to have something that makes you an outlier you're a freak athletically like a Giannis you're massive like a Joel Embiid you're the best passer and field guy for your size like Jokic you know even if it's a role-playing guy like Duncan Robinson, you're an elite movement shooter. You've got, you've got, got one for you. How about Jeremy Lamb? What's your Jeremy Lamb elite skill? <laughs> Mid-range curls off of the floppies action, right? Like wh- whatever ends like try to be an outlier skill that often gets you paid in the NBA and allows you to find a role. I think what a lot of people don't think about the most is that competitiveness and character are also outlier skills. And that's why, Chris Paul does what he does. Jimmy Butler continues to move on. Like you've got to look for some of that, whether it's going from a B to an a as a, as a basketball player, or even if it's just like a Ryan Archie Diacono who comes into the league and says, you know what? I'm going to make sure that I have a spot on a roster, a TJ McConnell, right? These guys that athletically maximize themselves based on their competitiveness and their competitiveness only. And I'm curious how that comes through in a draft combine setting, because there's only so, you know, competitive you can be outwardly when you're trying to jump up and knock the sticks off on the the vertical thing. But in scrimmage settings, in your interviews with people and how you present yourself, if I'm a general manager, I want to walk away and say, that kid impressed me because he just wants to win. He just wants to get better and, and genuinely feels that.
1: And I was reading on, I believe the box and one newsletter, uh gillespie right you just that's, did something I'm like can gillespie be this next guy
0: that's exactly what we're thinking about there that if there's a track record a pedigree of how they've carried themselves come through adversity and, and mm-hmm. gone over that that's somebody i'd rather bet on now obviously i'm not saying take gillespie fifth overall right like there's a point that you reach when that becomes valuable for your team but i i Sometimes you get drawn to the character, to the guy, to the person, and you don't want to bet against him. And you got to find the point to try to reward that. So that's my, that's my take on, on Gillespie, at least. But, uh, you know, we're talking a little bit about the team perspective here with the combine. And, and, and Ricky, I just want to know a little bit more about what you think teams value most. Again, you haven't been on that side of the world, but what do you get the sense that other people who are there – are really looking at most closely? Is it just measurements? Is it five on five play? Like, is there one or two things that when we go to the combine, we need to make sure our guys check off these boxes?
1: Yeah. I think it changes because, you know, the old thing, I'm going to go back to football again here. We used to say the NFL is a copycat league. When Kurt Warner had Azair Hakim in the slot, everyone wanted to find their next Azair Hakim. And that was probably the last time I paid attention to football was back in <laughs> Kurt Warner's day. And it does feel like that's kind of the thing in basketball too, right? Like, feel free to throw this back at me if you disagree, but it does feel like in a lot of ways, it's a copycat league. Yeah. So I think that in, in some regards, it's like, whatever the hot trend is, like if you got bigs who are really killing it, spacing the floor, you know, maybe those are the guys you're targeting. Uh, I'll say, you know, the last few champions in the NBA During a time when we've been talking like, oh, it's the league of small ball, you know, the center has become like the NFL running back. You don't want to invest in the center. You can pick up a center off the street and play him. and It'll give you 20 good minutes in the NBA finals. Well, not really, because now the center just seems like it's become more and more valuable in the league, even outside of the obvious superstars like Janusz Jokic, Embiid. Uh, So I'm going to say, you know, it's just like whatever the trend is, I think is, a lot of ways what teams are focusing on and i wish i had a better answer to this question i would be curious in knowing it too because i'm not really sure what what teams focus on in terms of what you can gain from the combine but you know it might just be what we were just talking about it's just like trying to get a sense of like the person behind the physical attributes and like trying to determine how how they're wired i think that that could be another good one
0: too and that that harps back to my time as a college coach when i was recruiting and working camps i always found much better of a format for me than just going and watching an aau game and then the player picks up his bag and walks off the court and you don't see him again for another few hours because at camps and in those settings you're seeing how do they get along with their teammates when they're waiting for a game in a lot of different ways, right? Are they going and getting shots up? Are they having conversations with the guys or are they laying there on their phones the entire time? And these guys at the NBA draft combine are going to be so much more prepped and told by their agents, the do's and don'ts of how to carry themselves throughout the week that it, it does seem kind of fake and polished in some regards, but those are the things that scouts can pick up on as they're there for a six or seven day period just trying to see these guys every single day. Like there's going to be something that has nothing to do with basketball that sticks in somebody's mind and says, I want that guy, or I don't want that guy. And again, that doesn't necessarily come in a five V five scrimmage or while you're bench pressing, you're doing a lane shuttle drill, but somewhere along the way, just having the eyeballs on you for a, a six or seven day period, you're going to show something authentic along the way. And somebody's going to either buy into that or take you off their board as a result. I like it. Well, Ricky, we we want to talk at least about some prospects here, right? Like all the fun stuff isn't just the philosophy and previewing the combine. So there's one guy that uh, we're going to have the Ricky O'Donnell's Leathernecks prospect spotlight on this week. Uh, Shout out Western Illinois there. But Ricky, who's the one guy you think we should talk about this week?
1: Yeah, you know, I just watched your Tari Eason video. I thought that was a a very good video, sort of highlighting his strengths and weaknesses as a player. So I know that's a recent one on the Box and One YouTube channel, which is excellent. Everyone should subscribe to that. I'm sure you already are if you're listening to this. Uh, so I, I want to talk about him because he is one of my favorite players to watch in this class. When I watch the playoffs, I think someone like Eason, fits in to the type of things we've seen successful in the playoffs. He also has some swing factors, which you uh, pointed out in your video. And yeah, he's fun. And I think like the main thing that just pops out about Tari to me is just the aggression he plays with. He plays with like, Oh, you got the ball. No, that ball's mine. I'm getting that ball. No matter what. And then I'm going to take it. I'm going to ram it down your throat with a dunk. He dunks. And plays like he just plays so ferocious with a one track mind towards shoving the ball down your throat, ripping it away from you, and then slamming it through the basket. Uh, I don't have like any numbers in front of me or off the top of my head about like, you know, did he dunk the ball more than any prospect in this class. I'm just going to say he did or as much as you know, any of the top level guys because it just shows up all over the film. He was just ripping the ball away, getting like pick six style uh, turnovers, finishing it on the other end above the rim. So that's what jumps out to him about me. And I think that he's going to be a guy who is going to be in play uh, maybe around 10, 11, probably down to like 17, 18, 19. So I think that's his range.
0: Yeah, Eason. so... I think Mark Williams led the NCAA in dunks, if I'm correct. <laughs> that uh, makes sense. Which, yeah, I mean, when you're just standing there and everyone lobs it up to you, it's easy to do. Um, but Eason, Eason's got to be really high on that list. And I will have the disclaimer out here, and it's, it's what's been bothering me about Eason as a prospect for a few months now. I traditionally struggle to peg guys like him. Like I was very wrong on Patrick Williams who I think has somewhat of a similar physical profile. He's not anywhere near as ferocious to steal your terminology as a guy like Eason is. Um, but I've, I'm struggling right now to evaluate Eason's feel. And I thought of Patrick Williams as a low feel prospect. When I watched the film, I didn't love the high volume and mid ranges. I didn't think that the physical Uh, mechanics of how he moved would allow him to get to the rim a ton in the half court. I thought that he would be a, a, below average three point shooter because his misses were really bad. And the confluence of all those factors said so much has to go right in order for him to just be an average field guy. Literally a month after he's drafted, he is running point forward in workouts with other NBA players and looks fantastic. And like, this wasn't on the film at Florida State, but how did I miss this? Um, and Eason is going to be a similar guy, right? Because when he was used out of the pick and roll, he was only trying to score that thing. But he, the times he did pass it, like there was some feel there. There was some evidence of good playmaking ability. He gets to the basket in the free throw line at an insanely high rate, but he only goes right. And then there's that question of, you know, if you're only going right, can you continue to do that in the NBA? Or is that something that's going to be a little bit limited at the next level? So trying to figure all of that out, uh, there are so many factors that lead me to wanting to slide Eason a little bit down my board, right? Like I don't love the shooting or trust it. I don't know how the playmaking is going to translate. I think he's very right-hand dominant. I think he gambles for steals a little bit too much, but, damn does he make an impact in pretty much every way on the court and at some point impact is what we're looking for right so uh, i struggle with eason in a lot of ways i see the top 10 potential i also see how he could be a, more of a guy in the 20s because there's just a lot of risk with a role player if he doesn't end up being a top option who doesn't shoot it very well and yeah. I, I don't i i struggle evaluating these guys like i was really wrong on mcdaniels in Minnesota, I was really wrong with Patrick Williams. Like I've tended to to mangle some of these guys, and because of that, I'm not sure what to do with Eason right now. But the concerns are the concerns for me, right? The playmaking, the feel, the right hand dominance, the lack of a consistent jumper. They all stare stare at me and say, "Don't take this guy too high."
1: Well, I guess first off, like, I don't think Patrick Williams has stamped himself as a good NBA player yet. He obviously missed most of his second season. I think he missed 65 games or something. But I I
0: had him 40th on my board, right? Like, I was real low. Gotcha. I think he's better than that, pretty clearly.
1: For sure. We'll see how good he is, though. Still very much to determine for Patrick Williams. In terms of Easton, a couple things that jump out about his statistical profile. For one, do you want to guess how many more turnovers he had than assists? I got it up. So I can tell you.
0: Yeah. uh, I, I know per 40 minutes, it was pretty atrocious, but I don't know the raw numbers. He had 40 more turnovers than assists this year as a ball handler in their offense.
1: He did handle the ball quite a bit. Yeah. And you don't see too many guys with his size, with the seven one wingspan getting playmaking duties, but just like the way LSU was set up, it was kind of just like a bunch of big dudes This year, he did handle the ball a lot. He handled the ball a lot in the open floor because he just ripped the ball away from the other team and then just started running with it. So that gives me some concern for sure. And then you talk about the shooting. Well, one thing that we tend to say at this stage of prospect scouting or whatever evaluation is like, well, if they have a high free throw percentage, they have the ability to shoot the three in the future. Eason, 80% from the line. It's funny you bring up Patrick Williams, because I was thinking about him, too, in terms of Mm spot-ups. Patrick Williams is pretty good with the ball in his hands. When he's a floor spacer, I just feel like that's not the best way to utilize his talent, because he does not have a quick release. He does not have a confident release. He needs to go to the Jay Crowder school of not giving an F about, uh, if you miss. Because Jay Crowder's just like, (laughs) give it to me. I'm shooting it as soon as I touch it. As soon as I touch it, I'm shooting it. Uh, these guys, Eason, very slow release, I think, from what I've seen of him. Uh, while he did make a lot of his free throws, very hard for me to say this guy is going to be an immediate catch and shoot threat. And like you'll even hear it during the playoffs, like Embiid had a quote, it was like a week ago or so. And I don't even know who he was talking about, but he was just like, you know, I know that when I pass it, they're going to shoot it. Like they're not going to hesitate. It might've been Danny Green or it might've been Niang or someone. And I just think like, man, if you're like the superstar and the defense collapses on you and you're kicking it out, like you want the dude to take that shot. Like partially maybe because you want the assist if it goes in and partially it's like, you know, the old coaching axiom of don't work for a good shot. Work for a great shot. Like sometimes the best shot shows up earlier in the possession, right? Like just because you take a lot of time doesn't mean that you're necessarily improving your chances of having a successful possession. So, yeah, I'm a li- I'm for sure worried about the three-point shot. Uh, with Easton, too, it's like defensively. So I kind of like think he's a little similar to Sohan, just like yep. entering the draft, both similar size, both very good defensively. I would say that Sohan is more just like east-west in his movement ability. Like, he's unbelievable on the horizontal plane to me. Mm-hmm. Just great ground coverage. Eason is a little bit more like he is more of the flash plays where you're just like, oh, my God, I can't believe you just ripped the ball from that guy. And, you know, his uh, block rate, steal rate for Eason is just like through the roof. That doesn't totally show up as much for Sohan. So uh, I just take it to you. Like, what do you, what do you sort of see differentiating those two guys? Do you view them as, you know, playing similar NBA roles? Am I wrong in that? Uh, no. I, I, well, who's who's going to be the better shooter between those two guys? Do you think both of them aren't going to shoot it? Do you see, well, Jeremy, even though he shot 58% on free throws, right? He got more confident in the outside shot as the season went on. He was certainly improving at a rapid rate. So, it's you know, what it's do you a tough think question.
0: Yeah, I, I think they're both similar prospects in terms of if they both strike gold, they do similar things well. Um, I tend to like Sohan a little bit more than Eason because I think he's much more reliable defensively. I, at the end of the day, to me, I would rather have somebody who sits down and guards in the half court and is really good multi-positionally strong bodied and, and knows how to rotate than somebody who's give me that ball. I'm ripping it out of your hands. Like who that, has like, the recovery it, skills more so than the Right. right. You know. and, and in the, in the post I just, I tend to value that more. I think teams and, and everyone gets way too smart for uh, defenders that gamble too much. Uh, offensively, I buy in Sohan a lot more though, a lot more than Eason. I buy the jumper more. Oh, wow. I buy his feel more. And I think by the end of the season, he actually started to be a little bit more of like a a unique creator within that Baylor offense in ways that I don't know if Tari Eason could handle. So uh, Sohan is is a guy that I would expect. I'm doing my scouting report on him next week. I've watched a lot of film, but when we go sit down and actually do the dive in, he's that guy that could crack the top 10 for me more than Eason is. Um, I buy I buy the shooting. I buy the feel. I buy a lot of it a little bit more than Eason right now. But um, again, I've been really wrong on these types of prospects before. This is the one position type that really gives me a lot of fits. Like I'm okay with with lead guards and point guards. I think I've got a pretty good hit rate with bigger guys. But this athletic three slash four multi-positional guy type, I've had some trouble with in the past.
1: Well, my biggest miss on my SB Nation resume covering the draft is I had Josh Jackson ahead of Jason Tatum back in whatever year that was, seventeen, I think. So I I'm had not Bamba. living that one down. You won't get one as bad as
0: that. Oh, I had Bamba one in 2018. So that <laughs> might be as bad. That might be worse. <laughs> that might be worse because uh, I, I had him ahead. the rest of that top 14 was pristine if I had just not put Bamba at number one. But uh, it is what it is there. ethan's going to be fascinating. He's going to be, no doubt, one of those guys that you either really love him or you say, not my cup of tea, I don't want to go in that direction. And I think there's a lot of value in the online draft community of really saying, like, hey, I'm not saying he's a bad basketball player. He's just not the type of guy that I would want to draft. And and I, I champion that a lot, come out and say, like, I understand why Eason's getting top 10 looks. He's just not the guy that I'd hitch my wagon to right now. Sure. That's all. So Ricky, always a pleasure catching up with you and talking. I know you got a busy week next week with the combine coming up. We'll find out who's picking first overall in the 2022 NBA draft, but really appreciate you coming on before we get you out of here. Let the people know where can they find you? What other work do you have coming out in the future here with SB nation? What can we be on the lookout for?
1: Well, you can find all my work at sbnation.com. on Twitter. I'm at SBN underscore Ricky. I'm going to have a new mock draft uh, as soon as the lottery results are announced. I'm writing little scouting report blurbs for every player. And I will say I've written 16 of them and we're already at 3,200 words. So, you know, even when you're just writing 200 words for every player, it adds up quick, you know, Add so down. I need to start pairing that down a little bit and uh, actually get it done, but I got a little bit of time. So new mock draft will have, I got that article up on whoever team should take number one if they win the lottery. And then I'll I want to do a shade and sharp breakdown, too, just because I feel like he's sort of the mystery man of this draft. There is some good EYBL tape out there, uh, you know, from his last time taking the basketball court, really. uh, Last time we really saw him. So hopefully going to do that. I'm sure I'll do some stuff from the combine as well. So all my coverage will be at SBNation.com, though.
0: Ricky does fantastic work Uh, for anybody listening that doesn't already follow him. Make sure you do because uh, there must reads in every sense of the word. So thank you, Ricky, for coming on and to all you listeners and viewers, thank you for joining us. And a reminder to always hashtag ban the take foul.